This is Deep Blue, where we get the true life stories of BYU athletes, coaches, and fans. Here's your host, Jerem Jordan. On today's show, we speak with one of the best coaches in the country at his sport. Add in that he runs ultra marathons for fun. Yep, for fun. And he's a fascinating figure already. And what's the story behind Karch Cry holding him after a game when he was a baby? He's the men's volleyball coach and a friend of mine, Sean Olmstead. What's up, Sean? Not much. I'm, uh, I appreciate those, uh, those words. Consider you a dear friend and uh, really, really excited to be here. This is cool. This is just going to be fun, I think. You, well, hopefully. Uh, you, you've been here <laughs> Every before. Every time I talk to you is fun, <laughs> and I enjoy all our discussions. Likewise. You came in the studio for Over the Top. We had a radio show. So this, yeah. this is old hat for you now. Yeah, I think I'm a, I'm a professional. Watch out. You know, <laughs> coming for you. Okay, let's start with volleyball, obviously. It's like the family trade. Your dad, Rick, was a coach, Karch Karai, who, for those who don't know, uh, the Michael Jordan of volleyball, right? He's Easily. incredible. Easily. He's Karch's high school coach. Yeah. And then Rick is this longtime, well-respected referee in Southern California in volleyball. Yeah. Uh, you, you have multiple siblings play volleyball. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously, Heather is the women's volleyball coach at BYU. You're the men's. Uh, Lacey was a, a libero. Was Heather a libero as well? No, Lacey was a setter. She was a she setter. She was a setter here at B- BYU-Hawaii, then transferred and played here at BYU. And I was watching her at Fresno State in a match uh, against Fresno State in Fresno when she uh, blew out her, her elbow diving for a ball, and so that kind of cut her career short. Um, but Lacey was setting here. Um, Heather was, the libero position wasn't created then, but she was at Utah State as a, you, back then you had to use subs as a defensive specialist. And uh, that year got drafted. There was, they were n- one of the numerous attempts to start a women's professional league. She got drafted as the only uh, defensive specialist that year. She had an unreal career at Utah State. I mean, we're talking knocking BYU out of the NCAA tournament. I was at that match oh, at Utah. That. Wow. At Utah, they were a top twenty-five program. I think her last two years. I mean, Heather was a baller, and I give her the credit that she 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 was a baller, and she's. She was a tough cookie. She was competitive. Heather, tough? I, I wouldn't have guessed. <laughs> <laughs> no, but... She's like but, so tough, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, but... Um, and then but, you were a two-time national champion at Liberty. Yeah, I was fortunate to come to BYU as an outside hitter. Uh, I do joke with Heather that I hold the all-time record at Carpenter High School with 47 kills in one match, but Ooh, I didn't that know record that. will never be surpassed. So, <laughs> But I came here, and very quickly I realized that, okay, I can't jump like Joaquin Acosta, and I'm four inches shorter than him. Uh, I can't jump like Jaime Mayol. Uh I don't have the arm like Lucas Lave. <laughs> and, but I had really, really good ball control because uh, family, that's all we did was play volleyball, and we were fortunate to live right on the beach in Southern California. So that's what the game is on the beach is ball control. And so Carl came to me and said, you know, in a Carl way, you know. Carl McGowan. Yeah, Carl McGowan, excuse coach. me. Yep. Uh, you know, Olmstead, you're never going to play outside hitter here. What was that like? That, that's why I have the pause, you know, and, and unfortunately we're not uh, on TV where we can see the face, but you're kind of like, okay, okay, you know, uh, but you could be a great libero, so you're going to be libero. And it wasn't a choice, and it was just, you're going to be a libero. Coach, I had 47 kills in the match. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to bring that up, but, but, but the great thing is uh, I, I, could, I knew those guys were better than me, that, and that's okay. That's not a bad thing, but... Because Carl did that, I was able to have a great career at BYU. 
because I could pass and I could I could play behind the block and and I th- I think I still have a few kills I think three or four in my collegiate you went three career for three, three one for three. year thousand percent that's what I mean so you know we've got that but um yeah and I was fortunate to play that position and and thrive in that position when it was you know before me there was probably. Brad Goldston, Fernando Pessoa, I was maybe kind of the third libero. And, and Nando and I went back and forth a couple of years. But um, so, yeah, just a volleyball family. Uh, just, that's what we did. And I look back now and it wasn't pushed on us. It was just our lifestyle. Like it was our life because of my dad, you know, and he was coaching. And, and like you mentioned, Karch Karai. And hopefully I'm not getting too ahead of myself when um, I, th- I think – now I go, man, dude, how fortunate I was I was as a kid. Those, those people just came to our house to visit my dad. You Coach Cry came to your house. Oh, yeah. They'd show up when they were passing through town and great coaches like Marv Dumphy and Al Skates and Carl McGowan. I mean, Carl took me out. Could be a recruiting violation, but I remember a, Carl taking me to lunch, just he and I, when I was like 10 or 11 years old. He took me to the Elephant Bar. Not, not in that sense. It's Bar and Grill in Santa Barbara, an old local place. And uh, took me to lunch and wrote me a nice letter after he got back to Provo. Thanks for going to lunch with me, Sean. And uh, what a great time. You know, I'm like, whoa. But so you had this relationship a decade before you even Yeah, yeah, yeah. Carl was super involved with BYU-Hawaii, where my dad played at the time was called Church College of Hawaii. And um, he was a non-member there, as was Mike Wilton, a former assistant uh, Dennis Largi, the former dean of religion here at BYU, these were all the non-members on the team. There was three of them, and they were great volleyball players. So Church College of Hawaii, I mean, they they beat UCLA. They were beating teams. Whoa. They were playing in those tournaments, you know, back then. And uh, so I was just fortunate to have those guys, you know, I didn't know any different at that time, you know. And now I look back at the pictures on my desk of Karch holding me when I was three months old. I, of course, you know, that – I just knew Karch. I was fortunate. Tell that story. Yeah. So um, my dad was coaching the the Santa Barbara High School, the Dons, and uh, they were a really, really darn good team. And that was the top division of high school in California. And I was born in March and the playoffs, I think, were in early May. So I was, you know, two to two and a half months old in a onesie, like a little green overalls, green and yellow for the Santa Barbara Dons. And Karch is the long hair back in the 1978, baby, you know, long hair, surfer kid. And uh, here he is running around uh, the stadium, just winning the state championship. And it was a ton of people. I think they might have played like Miracosta, one of the powerhouses. And uh, there he is carrying me around, you know, and so. Here, Karch, uh, you yeah. just won state. Here's a baby. <laughs> yeah, here's a baby. <laughs> Like, That's why? good. I see holding a yeah. baby. See, see, you asked me. I don't know because I don't recall it. You're like, well, but, I enjoyed it. It but was great. I do have the picture, yeah. you know, and I have some other great pictures of Karch attacking. Uh, I had one that I, I, I know Karch well enough to, you know, I, I text him, call him. That it's not a big deal. He's great. He's awesome. But so I sent a picture with him that I found in my dad when we were just going through old stuff. I'm like, Dad, look at the video. We were watching old film. Look at these pictures. These are classics. My dad's like, eh, you know my dad. So <laughs> that's the exact. Uh, sound I don't know. He I've made. been there. Yeah, uh, you know. Okay. And um, so I get this one picture. It is. I think you've seen it personally. He's coming around and hitting an X and just jumping out of the gym, forty inches probably, and jumping out of the gym. And my dad's in the background coaching in a full beard, you know. And 
So I sent it to the USA gym with one of the players. This was years ago. Hey, tell Karch to sign this. I'll shoot him a note that he's getting it. But I'd like to frame it. It's got my dad in there. And Karch writes me and he gets it a couple days later when the kid traveled out there. And Karch goes, Sean, I've never seen this picture. I, I need a copy. Yeah, Karch, I'll go to Costco. Make Fine, it, make, I'll make, make Karch make write it. a copy. All right, Karch, I'll make you a copy and sent that to him. And anyway, so... Um, those are, you know, my dad and, and his dad are very, very good friends. Every Saturday morning, uh, East Beach is the breeding ground for beach volleyball in Santa Barbara. It's just a beach stacked with courts as far as you can see. And every Saturday morning, they started at 8 a.m. They were called, you know, they just, they played 8 a.m. to noon. They had a four, four group, four guys, and they would just play. Anyone would come up like down in Southern California, you kind of challenge, hey, we want to take winners. And those guys were like, nah, get out of here. You're not messing with our game. Like, <laughs> and, and pretty quickly that was known, though, locally. Like, nope, you don't mess with Karch's dad, one, because he'll get after it more than my dad. But uh, you just leave those guys. They're doing their thing. And so I grew up digging in the sand, losing keys, losing wallets, just being a kid every single Saturday morning, as long as I can remember, I met – Famous NBA guys down there that would come down to meet volleyball players. Uh, Wilt Chamberlain was Wilt down Chamberlain, there. Who played, yeah, who volleyball. played volleyball. But he would come down there to play with Kathy Gregory, former UCSB, very, uh, very, very famous coach. 30-something, maybe 40 years as a coach there. He would come down there and play with them. Wilt Chamberlain, you know. So I've got autographs with Wilt, pictures with Wilt. Uh, yeah, so just uh, fortunate to be around the sport for so many, so many good years. What a legacy your family has had in that. And it's still, I mean, you, I feel like you have 10, 20, who knows, 30 years left of this, right, still, of, of who knows, of coaching. And, and Heather is the winningest coach in active women's volleyball, and you are the men's volleyball yeah. active winningest coach. What is that like to both be that successful? If you were both just mediocre, <laughs> I think it'd still be really interesting. But you guys are at the highest level of the game. Yeah, you know, um, We've, I think Heather would say the same thing. We've both been, been super fortunate to be around some phenomenal athletes. And we've both had really, really great mentors. And I think of Heather's mentors that I know of. And she, of course, had a great relationship with Carl, not as good as mine because I, I, I played for Carl. And, but, but, but Heather was close to Carl and, and the McGowan family. And, but it just goes back to all those relationships that she also had. So someone she's really close with is someone like Kathy Gregory. And, and then she's built her relationships over the years of coaching. But it's uh, – and we – gosh, we could go down that, that rabbit hole of just the plethora of outstanding young people we've been able to be associated with. And, and I wish we could somehow – I always say it – create something to – it is kind of what we're doing on this show, and I think this is awesome. And and we need to, you know, collaborate and just there's so many great stories that no one gets to hear about, about the volleyball players. So if there's volleyball, there's soccer, track and field. There is so many that people are going to want to hear about. And so we've been fortunate to have that. And I spent a week, about two weeks ago, I was a week recruiting in Kansas City. And I went out each night with different coaches. And uh, it got to the point where all they wanted to do is talk about my dad. You know, how's your dad? Everyone I run into. And it's like, hey, guys, I'm here. Sean's here. <laughs> like, you know, uh, no. But, but uh, I, I just took nonstop pictures and was sending them to our family text. Like, hey, who's this? Who's this? You know, and it was fun to see my sisters just, oh, Jim, that, that's Jim Nichols, the guy that played for my dad, 
went on to be a great player on the AVP. This is an example. And oh, I remember him living at our house. Like players lived at our house, you know, because mm-hmm. back then there weren't the rules that there are now. And my dad was also coaching a city college. And so it was a little different. But that's who my dad was. And hey, look who I ran into. And I'd take all these selfies around the gym with all these people that they, they really didn't care about our, the, me or our season. They wanted to ask how Rick was, you know, and uh, how's your dad. And so, um, yeah, we've just, we've just been lucky. And, and BYU, the resources they put into volleyball, Heather and I are definitely fortunate with that too. And so it, it's so fun to watch what she's done and, and to be a part of, uh, of that program in some small way. Um, and have that connection and then, you know, get to be with the guys. It's uh, really fun that, that to be a part of that program that, that I was once a part of, you know, as a player. We're talking with Sean Olmstead, men's volleyball coach, former player here as well here on uh, Deep Blue. I, I jokingly like to say, and I'm partially not joking, hey, this is a volleyball school. Oh, yeah. I know it's a football school. Yeah. But it's, all, it's a everything school. It really is. Like the support of the fans <laughs> is incredible. We've seen this, you know, in, in a couple of years ago when women's volleyball was the number one team for most of the country makes the Final Four. They set record after record with those crowds. It was crazy. Yeah. Men's volleyball, historic numbers, leads the country every year, right? Challenges with Hawaii with that. It's, it's awesome. What's that been like as a player to have experienced that? And then now as a coach to sort of stay in that area in a different role? Because I, I guess I feel that somewhat like, hey, I was a student here broadcasting, and now mm-hmm. I get to be on yeah. the other side helping the students. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not a coach in the same way you are, but a little bit of that where it's like, hey, you can do this. Like, you can get to this level. Yeah. No, it, it's exactly that. And I remember, uh, you know, the, you come into the, the games. You were, you were around here in, in those years. Just the energy and excitement. I mean, still to this day, it, it, we, we had a little setback with COVID, but— I mean, the energy this year with like 1,500 people, I don't know if you felt it. It felt like a packed house, and that just, that's a credit to our fans. But going back as a player, I mean, it was, it was crazy. Like you said, it's a volleyball school. I remember walking around campus, and come on, guys, I was a libero. I wasn't even the outside hitter or the setter. <laughs> I mean, I'm the libero, you know, and, it, you know, people, good luck. Yeah, let's go. I can't wait to go. And then showing up to the game. A few like hours before, because we had to do our prep or we had to go to serve and pass, and there's a line out the Smith Field House, you know. And then, then you're getting into the match and you're having the fire department shut it down. Like, all right, we're at capacity, we're beyond capacity. Let's get out of here, you know. And and so then, then to just be a small part of it as a coach, you know, I have to give credit where where credits due, which is the BYU athletic department, the, the promotional side, the, the event, they make it this great experience. You know, you're on the floor, you're right there. You feel so close to the players. And I think that's, what's so cool about volleyball, you know, football, you're football's exciting. Don't get me wrong and great, but you're still kind of far away. The Marriott center, the same like Smith Fieldhouse, you can get right there. You know, I can't tell you how many fans try to talk to me before the game, which Probably for another podcast and another time, but <laughs> like but, I'm in the zone. So, but <laughs> but um, you're right there, and so I, I can't tell you how many times I've looked up and kind of lost myself in the moment of like, wow, dude, this is this is awesome. This is this is crazy. Like, look at this. This is crazy. And then to see your guys enjoy it and and embrace it for me as the guys, I'm sure it's the same for Heather. Just you know, fortunate that man. Okay, I, I, I do consider myself a small part, and so, man, I'm a, 
I'm a small part in this, and this is this is exciting. And I got to be a part of that as a player, and so now I get to help those guys experience it and try to take full advantage of it and appreciate it and be grateful for it, every one of them, because before you know it, it's gone, man, and you hit the real world, and you're like, what, I got to go to work now from 9 to 5 or whatever and punch a clock or punch a computer all day? Man, what it would be like to go back to those days of the full Smith Fieldhouse. And so if we can take advantage of every little opportunity and moment, I think uh, we're going in the right direction. You take the women's volleyball team to the Final Four, the champ, the national championship game, unseated in 2014. It's this incredible run. And then, um, you know, uh, Chris McGowan steps down as men's volleyball coach. There's an opening there. How quickly were you thinking, hey, I'd really want that? And how long had you had the thought that maybe if there was an opportunity with the men's team that you would want something like that? You know, uh, yeah, that's a that's a great question. I never once had thought about it before because I just didn't think about it before. You know, I, Chris Chris was doing what his dad did. Chris was going to be there a long time, you know, and uh, I remember being as like shocked that the change occurred as everybody else and and nothing, uh, not mad at Chris because we immediately talked on the phone right when it happened, but I had no like, hey, heads up, I'm doing this. You know, I think it was Chris making that decision for himself and his family in that moment that he he went forward with it and didn't want to, you know, be quote unquote involved, like not, not that he didn't want to be involved, but like, Hey, I'm just going to go do this thing. I know that this is best for me. And so I had never really thought about it. You're, you're, you're in our, our grind of the women's volleyball. I was loving what was going on with the women's team. We were moving in the right direction. Alexa Gray, Jennifer Hampson, we could go on and on. And the recruits coming in the years after that, Ron, I had, I had committed, Mary Lake. I had committed uh, Ronnie uh, Jones. Uh, Ronnie Jones. <laughs> Ronnie Jones. Uh, but McKenna also. Um, McKenna Miller. Sorry, I'm thinking now she's married. Kennedy Eschenberg soon after. Uh, like all, uh, Eschenberg, I committed. I was going to her basketball games at Bountiful High School. So there was. These are be, all Americans. Yeah, all of the people all of you them just are all, named Americans. all Americans. Think about that. And so things were moving in the right direction. But um, but then when that did occur and and BYU, you know, the, the administration talked to me right off the bat, I, I began to then process and really take, uh, you know, really start to feel all the wonderful things that the program had given me as a young man and, and, and at such a crucial time in my life that I slowly began to think that way. Does that make sense as, as a man, as a father figure, you know, just the lessons that I took from it. And it's not like you don't get those lessons with the women's team, but I felt a part, uh, I was a part of BYU men's volleyball. And so you felt that immediate connection. And I also immediately knew that my sister was well prepared and ready to jump right into that. And, but but that wasn't my decision to make in terms of her accepting the job. You know mm-hmm. that? Let me make that clear. It wasn't like this worked out deal. All right, here's the deal we're going to make. I mean, Heather had to make that decision on her own, but I knew she was prepared. So I knew that, hey, there's a good chance that she'll become the head coach and they're going to be in good hands. You know, they're going to get rolling. They're going to they're going to just keep rolling, you know. And um, so there was a lot of that, uh, you know, where where I didn't feel like uh, 
I was bailing or moving away or dropping things and just leaving for the next thing. You know, I felt this connection to the men's team. The men's team was going to be in great hands, and it was exciting, you know, that that I was able to have that opportunity, and, and Heather was as well. Right away, you have success. Just right away. You don't have a season in 2015 because it's fall 2014 for you. Yeah. Yeah. And in 2015, there's no fall. It's into the winter yeah, of 16. Right. It's yeah, kind yeah, of a weird yeah, year. Yeah. But 16, you go to the national championship game. 17, you go to the national championship game. 2018, you get to the final four. 2019, you're rebuilding. 2020, you have the number one team in the country when COVID calls it. And then last year, you go to the national championship game. How have you been able to continue and even elevate BYU men's volleyball to stay and compete for national championships? That's hard. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's always hard, you know, and it, it, it is hard. And um, I, I, I think it's important, too, that I look at those years that I immediately took over and and give credit to the former staff that had built some that had some great players in the pipeline. Don't get you know I'm not going to come in here you and inherited say, Ben yeah, Pats, yeah, yeah, and yeah, a hundred percent, Leo hundred percent, you know. Yeah. But I will say that Brendan, I, I, you know, I joke with him all the time that I think I was the one that locked him into coming because <laughs> when we were at uh, at UCLA when they played Irvine in the finals, I think you were there. Uh, Brendan was still indecisive. He's indecisive, in the you know. With Jake Arnitz. With Arnitz. Who's a UCLA guy. With Arnitz. And mom came up to me and said, Sean, I was the head women's coach. I was just going there to cheer on the guys. Yeah. I was rooting for him. And uh, she said, hey, I want you to go talk to Brendan and get him to go to BYU. So I went over there in front of Arnitz and just said, hey, I don't know if I'd ever met him, you know, but he probably knew who I was and, you know, and uh, – I, I, of course, knew him and Taylor, and I just said, He's Yo. a top five recruit in the country. Oh, yeah. Bro yep. took him aside and yep. just said, come on, man. Come on. You're going to come here and do what your brother's done, and you're going to do it just as good, if not better. And you got to be at BYU to be able to do that. And look around you. Look around you. We're at UCLA right now. Who's, who's, uh, it's BYU. You know, granted, they weren't playing UCLA, but what I was saying is, look at this. The, mm-hmm. This is in Southern California, yeah. and this stadium is full of BYU. And so we, we joked over the years, like, hey, I got you here, you know. <laughs> but um, no, so Chris and Rob and those guys just had a great group of guys that I was able to just maybe ride their coattails for a few years. And, uh, but we were competitive, and we continued to rebuild. And we, and we brought in guys like Gabby and, and, and Lipe and, and Will Stanley and Mickey, and so we were able to kind of bring in those guys that made, you know, kind of their stamp on this, on, on this program. And so there's a part of me that looks at it that way where 100% I'm grateful for the guys that were here, and I was, a, I was fortunate again to be a part of that team. And maybe that's why this last year means even more to me, you know, in, 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 a, in a different way because – those were finally our guys, you know. Those were our guys that we had brought in, all of them. You could say Eschenberg was a commit because he went on a mission uh, with Rob and Chris, but uh, he never played, never, you know, he stepped foot on campus with me as the head coach off his mission. But um, every other one of the guys is is guys that we brought on here and, you know, did our best to build something special. And I'm certain, and, and, and we did. And so that's that's what you've got to do, but... Carl began this tradition and, and, you know, this program, the history behind bringing in great players and, you know, getting these kids to 
get on the same page, both members of the LDS Church and foreign non-members and maybe even some non-members from, from the USA to get them on, 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 the, on the same page and represent BYU, and, and they've done it well. So I think we've, we've had a nice program built that continues to feed into that. And, and you know, we look forward. To, uh, that's the standard we've got, and we understand where we've got to be as a volleyball program. I believe what you said. We're a volleyball school, and so Heather and I have got to keep that thing rolling, got to keep it rolling. It's fun to watch. Can't wait for the upcoming season. It's going to be great. Okay, so the influence of, in the Olympics is notable as well. Of all the sports where BYU represents in the Olympics, it is volleyball. So Taylor Sanders on that 12-man. There's a couple alternates. There's obviously Mike Wall is an assistant mm-hmm. coach with the men. Lucas Labe is an assistant coach yep. with the women. Man, the history there is incredible. What is it about BYU men's volleyball being able to supply professionals and Olympians that this, is, this has been a thing since the 60s? Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, you look. You also look at the coaching tree. If you went down a coaching tree nationally in women's top programs, in men's top programs, that, that all goes back to Carl McGowan. Yes. A hundred percent. And back in the day, you know, Carl McGowan, you had coaches that were leaving their, their jobs. Marv Dumphy left Pepperdine after he was already the head coach to come get his doctorate degree here at BYU. Now, and I mean, live he, with Carl. And live with Carl. You know, and every time <laughs> Marv comes into town, hey, Sean. Let's go on a drive. What, Marv? You want to go on a drive? Yeah. I want to go show you the house I was in. Yeah. Okay, Marv. <laughs> so drive up the canyon. But, uh, but um, so many coaches did that, that that people don't even know about. And, you know, then, then you just have uh, this great group of players that Carl began to build. So I keep bringing up Carl because I do believe it all started with him. And you look at that yeah. team that won a gold medal in 2008. I mean, Hugh McCutcheon's the head coach. That was a former All-American here. My coach, like, he was my the, the assistant that I played under. Not my assistant, but Hugh McCutcheon's the head coach. Ron Larson is on the bench with him, another BYU grad. Rich Lamborn's the starting libero. That's a national champion player from 99. Ryan Millar's the starting middle, 99. Um, I'll probably forget, guys. Was so Rob you can help Browning me. helping uh, out Rob in Browning, any way? Rob Browning was the statistician. Former assistant here. I mean, look at that. That's like on that team, that is BYU. And it's just continued. And now it's gone over into the women's game with, uh, with Luca, you know, uh, leaving here when he was coaching. We had the, some great years together and came to me and said, I've got this opportunity. Yeah, you got to go, man. This is awesome. And he continues to represent BYU. He's uh, at NC State now. NC USA State women, as yeah. the head coach, and yeah. and you've got so you've got look at look at the the volleyball teams that are going to start in Tokyo here soon. You've got Mike Wall on the coaching staff. You've got Taylor Sander on the floor. He's going to be a starting outside hitter for that Olympic team. Um, you've got Rich Lamborn that is coaching the Sand team of Jake Gibb. A Utah guy, Utah community guy, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and Taylor Crab. You've got Luca Slabe on the on the floor with the women's side BYU, and so it's just been you know a tradition of these great players and great teams. And then you've got alternates in Brendan Sander. You've got Ben Patch. You've got all these guys that are still playing professionally and and doing a great job representing. And and Ronnie's still playing professionally. And and we can go on and on. But there's been just an unbelievable tradition of great volleyball that has come out of BYU. Provo, Utah. Are you kidding me? Provo, Utah. As as Carl said at the 50th uh, anniversary of BYU men's volleyball banquet, he said, 
I think it was maybe it was Hugh, one of the Australians coming up, said, "Oh, you think the beaches in Australia are great? You got to see Utah yeah. Lake." <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I've heard that one many times. Let me take you down to Utah Lake. Yes, uh, it's the worst. Okay, I know you love MMA. Yes. MMA. And my guys it, know that too. Yeah. What is it about MMA that you love? And how does that translate into you maybe being a better coach or is it separate? No, no, no. I think it does translate. I think all of those things, anything that involves, uh, you know, uh, competition, uh, sportsmanship, athleticism. Uh, but what I really, really enjoy and, and really pulled me in on that was back when I was, I don't know if I told you this, but back my first coaching job was at Cal Poly. And that was in 2005. And if you go back into the timeline of the UFC, that was right when Chuck Liddell, the Iceman, hit the, hit the market, okay? And so he, in San Luis Obispo, that's, he, he's actually from Santa Barbara, my community. He graduated high school there. But then he went and wrestled at San Luis Obispo at Cal Poly and stayed in that community, just loved it there. And so he was tight with the Cal Poly coaches, and he would literally co- – he would come to campus. He would come to campus, and if you watch Chuck Liddell fight, for the, for the mixed martial arts fans, true fans would remember, recall, Chuck Liddell would never really go on the ground, he, even though his background was wrestling, but he was so good. He was, I think he still holds the record for being able to defend takedowns. You, you got him down, he was right back up. He just knew how to get right back up. And so he would come to Cal Poly, and he would go to the wrestling room, and that's a really good wrestling program. That's a top-level wrestling program, Division One. And he would just go into the wrestling room, and he would go in there for 30 minutes straight, and every five minutes, they would throw a new kid at him, one of the current, you know, athletes at Cal Poly, <laughs> and just go, boom, clock starts, five minutes. All they were trying to do is just take Chuck Liddell down. They weren't fighting or anything. It was, you know, none of that was involved in that, but all you were doing is trying to get him to the ground, and he just would defend it. And those guys would get burned out, those kids, but he had to do it, okay, five minutes, Buzzer would New go round. being yeah I saw it I saw it so Chuck would come to campus and 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 you know so I was just captivated like that in that sense I felt like I had a connection you know the wrestling coach I became friends with him and he was really really good friends with Chuck really close because that's how Chuck was coming on campus hit up the coach like hey let's go a few rounds you know uh, I'm getting ready Did for you a ever fight jump in? Uh, no <laughs> I would never jump in are you kidding me. Um, um, but but just that competition, and uh, so I was just fascinated by it. You know, close the cage. It's you and I, my will against your will. You know, uh, my heart against your heart. And that's a sport that it's there, man. You are exposed. Your heart. You know, uh, as best you can, it's opened up. And like this is what you're made of, dude. You're you know. And for those guys to go in there, people, it's bloody. It's brutal. I get all that. But man, it's fascinating to me. It's fascinating to me, and and I don't. I rarely miss a show, a UFC show, pay per view, or ESPN Plus, or uh, I was watching the Ultimate Fighter from season one. You know, Spike nice. TV back in the day. <laughs> uh, we could go on and on. I've gone and met fighters, just like random appearances. Like that's how nerdy I am. I, I remember I went you to love it. Then yeah, yeah. I went. Uh, my wife. I took my wife one Saturday years and years ago. Jeremy Horn uh, and Jens Pulver were going to be at a Best Buy. Like, what? Random meet and greet. And I'm like, hun, let's go. Get in the car. Let's go. We're going to—who are we going to meet? And Jeremy <laughs> Horn at the time was pretty much the, was the only person who had ever beaten Chuck Liddell. Back in the day, at the beginning of Chuck's career, Chuck 
fought him again and, and picked him apart, destroyed him, you know, years later. But Jeremy Horn had beaten Chuck Liddell. Jens Pulver was a former, one of the inaugural champions of the UFC. I go and meet these guys, you know, just, just to go meet that, those guys. And then I don't know if you remember, you may or may not, Josh Berkman was a local fighter. He was on The Ultimate Fighter. He's from Utah. I was getting off the freeway when I was coaching the women's team. Getting off the freeway, I see him pull up next to me at the light. He doesn't see me. He doesn't know me. I follow him. I follow him to a gym. I don't know where I'm going, but I'm oh. following this guy. Oh, boy. I decide to follow him. Yeah. I follow him to a gym in Orem. True story. He gets out of the car. <laughs> I open my door. I'm like, hey, Josh, so sorry to bother you. He's kind of like, yo, man, what's up? Like, he was cool. Yeah. I said, hey, look. This is random, man. This could get weird fast. This could get yeah. really weird. Like, you know, I, I'm going to keep my distance. Yep. You know, we were practicing six feet back then, you know, just for <laughs> other reasons. But uh, I just said, look, I'm the women's volleyball coach. I know everything about you. I've seen you fight every time that you've stepped in the octagon. He was still competing in the UFC at that time. And I said, I'm the women's volleyball coach. I'm not the football coach or wrestling coach. I'm a volleyball coach at women's at BYU. I'd love you to come talk to my team. Like, he was like, What? And he, he was just like, dude, let's do it. Let's do it. Gives me a cell number, comes down, meets with our team. The girls loved it. Tom Homo was there because I told Tom, hey, this is outside the box. And in case you ever find out, this is what I'm doing. I'm bringing Josh Berkman here to meet with our team. And they loved it. You know, and he, he talked about fighting and this and that, but he didn't get into the weeds that. Only when I asked questions, my questions were all different. Like, hey, you know, <laughs> in this fight, what happened here? You got clipped at this time and how, you know, but um, the girls loved it and he enjoyed it, man. He enjoyed it. Kept texting me that year when we had big wins and, and we, cool. we've kind of lost contact now because he's retired, but you know, I, I love it all. Uh, Poirier, McGregor, um, the Diaz brother, we, we could go on and on. I, I could talk about this for hours, and we could go into the weeds and fighters, up-and-comers, the veterans, Is whoever. this your favorite sport to watch? Uh, to watch, uh, yeah, for sure to watch. Do you like it more than watching volleyball? Uh, yeah, probably. Wow. Yeah, no, um, soccer, would be a t- soccer would be right up You're there. You're a soccer guy? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, oh, what, yeah. what kind of soccer oh, yeah. are we talking about? No, no, no. We're talking, we're talking international. We're talking Euro. I'm, I'm pretty comfortable discussing all that. Um, Jen knows I support her a ton because my wife played there, but, and, and I'll watch that. But, um, yeah, so, yeah, soccer would be above volleyball. Uh, MMA would be above volleyball. You know, if I'm just going to go watch it, of course we're watching film. So I don't, I don't need to be ripped apart by the fans. You Sean know? <laughs> Olmstead likes watching MMA no, more than opponent but, footage. But if you're going to ask me if I'm going to go pay to watch a volleyball game or pay to watch uh, you know, an MMA fight, I'm going to probably pay to go watch the MMA fight. Yeah. You know, but... Um, yeah, yeah, that's I was glued to the TV on the Euro Cup, the you know the the South America it was crazy, stuff, right? Yep, Copa Argentina as well. Yep. Took Brazil. Yep. Uh, Di Maria came through. Messi had that. Oh, it, it, I was so happy for Messi. Granted, I served my mission there, but what that guy's gone through and the ups yep. and downs of his career. Yep. But man, those last what was it three minutes? He had that opportunity, and the field at Maracanã. I've been to Maracanã. I've watched a soccer game at Maracanã. That's that's the greatest soccer stadium in the world. There is no discussion know, there. It houses 200,000 people. There is no discussion there. I've been to a live soccer game in Maracanã. That's pretty cool. And uh and and Messi had that last opportunity to just put it away 2-0 and that what that would have been amazing. But 
I had talked to Rafael Paul, former mm -hmm. player, Brazilian, yep. the week before, talking trash on the phone. We did a FaceTime call. <laughs> he said, Sean, Brazil, the, the field sucks. And if you watched the game, you saw they were just – granted, it's humid down there, but the, that field was coming apart. It was actually really bad. In the, the middle play, of winter down there. The, the yep. players had all complained, you know. And uh, so, yeah, I was super happy for Messi in Brazil and – and on another note, when we went down to Sao Paulo, you'll appreciate this, when I took the team down there. Next time you go to Brazil or somewhere, I want to go. Uh, you are coming. you got to figure it out. You, you can be my yeah, guest. Yeah. My wife, That'd you know, these, most of these foreign trips, she doesn't go. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll uh, take her tickets. You can be my <laughs> guest. So we get to Sao Paulo. We land, and Lipe comes up to me. Felipe is a Brazilian player. Sean. There's a big game in Sao Paulo tonight. I said, Lipe, we just flew all night. Like, we, you know, I'm like, yeah, we're not going to a soccer game in Sao Paulo. Like, no, we're not taking our team to, to those. You've seen what that is. And it can be intense. Yes. Yeah. And he yeah. goes, Sean, it's my team. He just got all passionate. What's his, what's his team? I couldn't, Do you I can't recall. I, can't, I, I have pictures. We don't have time, but I could pull them up. I have videos. And he just goes, Sean, please, like, you know, I – this is how crazy this was. Because I would, I would have loved to gone, but like you can't just spur that on a foreign trip with a team, a, a travel like delegation. How many AIs is this? Yeah, yeah exactly. travel delegation. We can't just go tonight. We're going to a soccer game in Sao Paulo. So I go to Brian Santiago was with us. Matt Richardson was actually with us, uh, former vice president. And I just said, look, Lipe really wants to do this. I, I, I wanted to go. But like I said, the timing was like, boom, we land there. And he goes, my dad just told me my team's playing here in Sao Paulo against a team from Argentina, another club team. Oh, interesting. So I just go, Brian, what do you think? And Brian goes, you know, yeah, Sean, no, no, no. And then he just goes, you know, Sean, ask if a few of the guys want to go, let's, let's make it work. And I go to, go to the guys, hey, you guys are all dead tired. We had nothing on the agenda. It was more sleep. Just that night, we're going to get dinner and go to your rooms and curfew and everything. Who wants to go to a soccer game? I was blown away. No one wanted one guy, Price Jarman. Only Price. Only Price. Who's up for anything? Like he's a, he is up for anything. Only Price. Like I was, I was shocked. So I went to Brian. I said, "It's me and me and Price and 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 Lipe." And Brian said, "Yeah, go." I go to Lipe. I said, "Lipe, okay, now we got the approval to go. How are we going to get tickets?" And he he gives me that Brazilian nod. He's like, "Sean, we'll get tickets. <laughs> you got cash?" Yeah. I said, "Yeah, I got cash." <laughs> Give me all the cash you got. Let me keep, let me keep track of it. Finders fee of 10%. We go to this game. He, he scalped us the greatest tickets. We were in like this private. We had food. It was like <laughs> the stadium down there. The stadium jam was just – it was moving like a wave. It's like, dude, this thing is going to collapse. Fires in the state. Like it was so cool. And I had been to a game at Maracanã again on a really good governor. Like it was a ticket from the governor of the state of Rio. A former player knew him. So I was in those – VIP seats mm. again you know so but it wasn't uh, it, like that other stadium in Sao Paulo was insane game's over we go out in the streets and it's just full madness you know the Brazilian team won it's like scary madness and it's like how are we freaking getting back to the hotel yes I pull out my phone start recording because it's just people you know their chants they're dancing yep. and we can barely move I pull out my phone and this guy grabs me by the shoulder, a Brazilian, not, you know, no one I ever knew. And he just looks at me and he goes, no, put your phone away. Because I, I think he knew I was probably American. He probably heard Price and I talking, yeah. you know. Yeah. And he goes, put your phone away right now. <laughs> and I'm like, 
I got it. Thanks, man. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, enjoy this. So, anyways, anyways. Uh, well, not only enjoy this, but you're going to get that thing swiped in about oh, two seconds. Oh, gotcha. You know what He's I mean? Like, hey, yeah, yeah. hey, dude, oh, like, you're, you're in trouble. Would you recognize if I said the name? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Palmeiras, Corinthians, or Sao Paulo FC are like the well, no, the, top the, flight team. Yeah, but that was the Sao Paulo team. See, Lipe's from some, uh, Lipe's from a different part, Maringa, uh, Maringa. Yeah. and so it was more his team. Oh, I just his don't team recall. Came into town. Yeah, 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 something like that. Yeah, gotcha. yeah, gotcha. That's amazing. Okay, because I took to the Premier League mm-hmm. two years ago. Yeah, I'm going into year three. A friend yeah. and I were like, dude, let's have a Premier League team. Yeah, let's jump in full bore. Yeah, and we chose Chelsea, uh-huh. um, who was the top six team and going to be good yeah. on TV more and blue and Nike in London and Christian Pulisic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those were our reasons. Yeah, and it's been one of the most enjoyable sports journeys I've been on. Oh yeah. Obviously, this last year they win the Champions League and yep. it's like really special. Yep. Which I couldn't really appreciate given the new fandom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Supporters, yeah. you know what <laughs> yeah, I mean? Yeah. Like we You're waited jumping for on this. the bandwagon. I've waited two years. Like no, my whole life. My, yeah. Oh yeah. So so. It was still fun, but like, I kid you not, I look forward to the Chelsea games more than I do say the Jazz. Oh. I kid you not, it's weird. I'm I don't not, know, like, because I am an NBA player. side. Yeah. I like the Blazers and Jazz. Yeah. Grew up in both. No, but like, it's so fun, and and you know, I I can go back to my because I'm a fan. You're yeah. a fan of you know BYU sports. Obviously, that's why I have this job. But it's like my role is different. Your role yeah. is different. Yep. It's fun to just attach to a club and ride oh, yeah. the highs and lows of that team. Yep. So what what has this journey been like for you, like growing up knowing about BYU, having this relationship with Carl, as you talked about, to you play at BYU. Yeah. You win national championships at BYU, and then you go to Cal Poly, go Mustangs. Yep. You go to, was it Utah State after yep. that? Aggies. Okay, and then you, then you come home, yeah. uh, back to BYU with the women's team, and now you're with the men's team, and now you're like competing for national championships in front of these packed houses in the Smithfield House. You're going on the road, and road games are neutral or home games for BYU yeah. because of these fans. What's that experience like for you? Yeah, it is uh, it is actually one of those experiences that as you try to do your best to attempt to describe your fandom for soccer on, on this microphone and in this room, at, in reality, that's not going to re- relay that well to everybody listening. So... No matter what I say, probably won't sink in because it, nobody's me, if that makes sense. Not in an t- arrogant way in terms of, dude, this is crazy. It's crazy. I wear this wristband. I've worn it for a couple years now because I really just believe that uh, it's the lucky ones. And I shared it and gave all the guys one uh, a couple years ago. I just think that, man— I'm I'm one of the lucky ones, you know, and that could, for me, the reason I wear this is because that can just encompass so many things. I, I feel a deep sense of gratitude for, to my Father in Heaven for who I am, the the family that I, I, I've been blessed with, you know, from my my family to my own family now. And I just look around and there's so many people that uh, have so many different struggles and difficulties that, man, I'm lucky, and I hope I never look beyond that. You know, in in any sense, and and, and that this the lucky ones applies to this job coming up. It's every young LDS kid's dream to play at BYU, and that's why I understand when kids reach out to me and just and explain to me that that's my dream and my vision. 
And the hard part for me is some is is a lot of times telling these kids no. That it, it kills me, Jerem. It kills me. It's seriously so difficult for me. And maybe I need to have tougher skin, but I, I just I I know where they're coming from. And then I came here and I got to be a part of it. I was a part. I was a walk on. I was I was a you know. And then I got to be a part of national championship teams and play for Carl McGowan and be here at BYU. And then when you go into coaching, uh, I, I went into coaching. I, I, I got into it because I wanted to be like my dad because my dad was a coach. I always have looked up to my dad and everything. I also wanted to be like Carl because of the impact he had on my life. And so I knew from the moment I stepped on campus, I, wanted, I was, I was going to coach volleyball. I didn't know maybe club, maybe this, make it work, make, make a life of coaching. And then here I am full circle back at BYU. And so I do everything I can to never – just any moment or any opportunity, any, any moment to reach out to somebody, to put my arm around them, to give them a hug and tell them thanks for their support, thanks for being a BYU fan, I'll do anything. I've done some crazy things. I'll show up at birthday parties and, you know, because I just know, like, if someone— re- Good to know. I, I know what they're feeling. No, I know what they're feeling. You know, there was a family uh, just, just, just a while ago that—it uh, was like a family of 10 kids— and they came, and someone, someone reached out to me. And, you know, I, I don't want to speak for the other coaches at BYU, but in that situation where they just show up, not plan, I don't know how many coaches would, you know, time out on their day and just go down, but someone called me and asked me if I could do that. And I'm like, yeah, I go down there. And these kids, they look like it, just their eyes wide open. And in that moment, I happened to have Gabby and Lipe with me. They were just shooting the breeze in my office. I said, dudes, come with me. They lost it. They, those, they almost fainted like a Michael Jackson concert. Like, you know, you see the videos on YouTube back in the day. And I took one of our balls that we had about like 30 of them that were signed by our team last year. And we saved those for really, really special people. And uh, I, I, I gave them one, you know. And I just got a thank you note yesterday, actually. So it's funny we're talking about this just from each one of those kids. And they're just a family from, you know. BYU fans. And so, so I feel that, man. I think, I feel like I'm one of the lucky ones. I feel that every day. I feel that, I feel that with the fact that I can go out and run and co- go run long distances. I, I, I never take that for granted. I'm not injured. I'm healthy. I'm strong. And there's people struggling some fights, man. There's people struggling some fights. And so I feel like I have to like maximize everything, whether that's work, whether that's my own life, my personal life. I got to do everything I can. And if I don't, man, uh, I'm not taking advantage of, of the blessings that I've been given. So that's a long answer to that one, you know. You got a special family, and uh, there was almost tragedy uh, in your yeah. family when, when your mom was, mom Trudy was pregnant with your uh, twin sisters. Yeah, my mom was pregnant with twins, and uh, they found a tumor on her lungs. She began to have just trouble breathing and, and thought not much of it at first. Just a normal pregnancy, excited to be expecting my fourth baby. I started with a cough and it concerned the doctor after about three months and we discovered that I had a tumor in my lung. And then it just got progressively worse to where it was harder. And they found kind of a a mass, it was like a softball size uh, in her lungs, you know. And, And I could be wrong on some things, so please don't hold me to it and uh, rip me apart, you know, but, um, 
And but she was pregnant with the with uh, my my little sisters Heather and Nicole Heather the women's coach and uh, they went to all the ca- the the cancer specialists you know because they they're they're seeing a tumor kind of a mass in California and and none of them not one of them was willing to look at it. Things were happening so fast it was like different opinions were happening daily from different doctors and it was just barrage each time I'd go up there there'd be a different diagnosis and a different opinion. It- seemed to be fast growing and that they felt that I only had three months to live if nothing was done. And that was just, what? I was advised by doctors that I should abort to save my life. Then the doctor decided to take a final ultrasound scan of the growing fetus. I was awake during that scan and when I heard one of the doctors say, oh dear, I wondered what they'd found now. But everything changed for me when the doctor said, you are carrying twins. In that moment, I said to myself, the Lord did not allow me to conceive twins only to abort them. I'm going to deliver the babies. If I die, I die. And go without her aborting. You know, they were willing to do scans and all that stuff, but get in there and see what they could do or even attempt because she was pregnant with twins. And... My mom, they said, look, uh, this is going to be fatal. They, they told her that. And we're talking months from what we could tell back then. You know, that was probably 81. And if we don't abort this pregnancy, which was by then pretty far along, um, yeah, this, you're not, you're, you're, you're in trouble, you know, and then it's going to be tra- tragedy all over the place. And um, my mom and dad were adamant, no. We're going we're gonna to fight this. My dad did everything he could. So did my mom. But everyone in California, the, the UCLA cancer, you know, SC, they went to the best hospitals they could and the cancer institutes. Well, my grandpa was a – I can't recall if he was a mission president or temple president at the time in Japan. I would be wrong with that, but he was living in Japan. He'd come to, the, to Utah for training and they had all these people in there. Well – President Nelson at the time was not a general authority. And my grandpa grew up, born and raised in Brigham City, Brigham City with his wife, uh, Danzel, I think. So my grandpa is in the parking garage and sees her. Hey, how many years? You know, hug. And my grandpa was done with the meetings. He was here for training. He was flying back to Japan. Hey, this is my husband, husband Russell M. Nelson. Oh, I've heard about you. You're a surgeon and da-da-da-da-da. Yeah, I am. And... You know, they, it was just a meet and greet. He was seeing an old high school friend, and that was President Nelson's wife. And, oh, great to see you. So then he gets back to Japan. He's there only a few days, and he gets the news about my mom. No, don't know what to do. Don't know what to do. And, and he just says, hey, you know what? I just ran into, you know, Russell M. Nelson. He's a surgeon. Why don't I just pick his brain? Just throw it out there. Hey, good to see you. So he calls him. Dr. Nelson. The doctors here say it's this, they say it's this, that I have to do this, that. And I remember him being, not gruff, but being very firm and saying, young man, do you want to talk or would you like to listen to me? So I listened to him and I just felt comfortable with what, what he had to say. And he says, okay, give me all the information you got. Okay, give me all the results. Give me, you know, on the phone. They're just chatting. And he goes, hey, 
get all the MRIs, get all the x-rays, get all the scans you can collect from California, from all their visits, and get them to me sometime as soon as you can. And my grandpa said, actually, I'll go get them all, come back from Japan, and I'll bring them to you. So he does. He flies back from Japan, gathers all the x-rays, all the scans, everything, and flies back to Salt Lake and knocks on President Nelson's door and just says, hey, uh, President Nelson opens the door. He's got a brown paper bag, like grocery bag, old school, with just notes just because of the phone call where they and also his discussions with doctors. So he probably started at the kitchen table on a bag and just kept it. And every he, he called the doctors in California. President Nelson did did everything he could. And he said, thanks. My grandpa gave him everything. He asked him, would you like to stay here tonight? My grandpa said, no, I've got a house in Provo. Uh, you know, and, and President Nelson says, well, I'm going to look at these. I'm going to pray about them. And that's kind of funny that you're here tonight because the president of the American Cancer Society happens to be in Salt Lake spending the night with me. You know, just not Mormon, but happened to be in Salt Lake. And he says, uh, I'll call you in the morning. And so 8 a.m., he calls my grandpa. My grandpa's in Provo. Hey, can you come up? They go up, go into his office or his home. I can't recall. And he says, Hey, I believe this can be done. Okay, what can be done? We can take this. We can remove this, this mass and this tumor. Not we, but it can be done. This is what Elder Nelson said. It can be done. I believe it can. I've prayed about it. I believe it can be done. And, uh, and, uh, but, and we can save this pregnancy. And my grandpa's like, this is great, you know. And uh, long story short, and he's, right then the, the cancer guy goes, and he should do it, Elder Nelson. And then Elder Nelson, or excuse me, President Nelson kind of goes, and I want to, I'm willing to do it. Well, you're a heart surgeon. You know, this is removing my mom's lung. She lives life with one lung right now, removing my mom's lung. He said, get your daughter out here ASAP. And so my dad had a, a wealthy friend in Santa Barbara who had a plane. My mom was on a plane within two days. Mm. And... uh my mom was on a plane within a couple of days. I was on the plane. I don't recall. I was two years old. We all flew up. It was eight-hour surgery. I don't know. I've got the record of my work on her right here, so I'll read it. The date of this operation was June 16th, 1980. This patient, 30 years of age, is pregnant with twins. She's about 16 weeks into her pregnancy. And she had symptoms of cough and shortness of breath. So her obstetrician got a chest X-ray, which revealed a large tumor in the right lung. I operated upon her at their request that the only way that we could remove it surgically was to take out the whole lung. It was complete inspiration and revelation on that surgery table that he received to know how to navigate that treacherous surgery. This is the kind of an operation that doesn't happen very often. In fact, one time in my career, when I got down to the very most crucial part of the operation, I found that there wasn't a way I could get the tumor away from the heart. There was only room for the blade of the scissors. So I cut the artery and put my finger in the pulmonary artery. And he said, I put my finger in there and did the surgery with one hand. And then put the stitches around the artery and pulled those up and pulled my finger out and tied them down and 
she survived. So it ended up not just being about the tumor. It ended up, you know, being the journey that our family took. So he tells the story how his fingers stayed in there for hours and he sewed around it and lost all all uh, blood in his own finger, you know, just from the, the squeezing that and holding that all together for hours. And so um, took out my mom's lung and uh, Heather and Nicole are here. And my mom and Heather and Nicole, they... I think they were front row at his birthday party, you know, <laughs> just my mom has a very, very special and strong connection with him, uh, so much so that uh, this is a funny story. I got back from my mission, and I came right to BYU, and so my mom and I went to a live session at the temple because I'd never done one before my mission. When we're done, I said, Mom, let's go see President Elder Nelson at the time. Sean, you can't do that. You don't do that. Can't just I said, Mom, I've been with him in situations where he's told you that, Trudy, if you're ever in town, you come see me. Sean, okay, yeah, they just say that. Look, you it's don't like, do have that. have a great summer. Let's hang out. Well, that doesn't really through, happen. Throughout my childhood, though, anytime he did go to California on church business, he did, his secretary always, always called my mom and mm. said, Elder Nelson's going to be close to you. He'd love to see you. And so we went okay. to the, some of those things. Gotcha. Okay? So, we, so I've, I've known him over the years and been able to have those, those, uh, those moments, you know. But this is right after my mission. I'm gung-ho about the, you know, my testimony. I just served a mission. Hey, I heard him say that. No. F- come on, Mom. Come on, you know. It's right there, the church office buildings. Come on. No, Sean, you can't. Come on, you know. So we go over there. Okay, gosh, Sean. There's full security. I don't know if you've been there, but it's full security. You know, they've got the wire in, you know, and, uh, hey, this is weird, but I would love to know if Elder Nelson's here. He knows me. He would love to see me. Yeah, sister, that I get that a lot. You know, probably <laughs> <laughs> I get that a lot. That's not going to happen. And no, sorry, sorry, sorry. And I chime in. I'm like, look, I've been there when he said, if you're in town, come see me. He will want to see my mom. Yeah, I understand, kid. Great, you know, great story. I'm sure it's good. You, we didn't give them the story, but I'm sure it's Here's a good parking one. Validation. I'm just sure they have it. Yeah, they get it a lot. And so I just said, I promise, I promise. He's like, no, look, sister, give me your name. I'll pass it on to your secretary. But really, sister, have a great day. You're not, you're not going past here. And uh, we're walking out this long hall. It's like something out of the movies. You hear the phone ring. Because he probably sent an email or a note upstairs like, hey, Sister Olmstead stopped by to see Elder Nelson, just FYI. His phone rings. I knew it in that moment. Like, it was so clear as day what was going to happen. I'm opening the door for my mom to leave. Are you walking slow? Yeah, probably, probably. (laughs) But I hear the phone ring and he goes, sister, sister. And he just literally summons us back to his desk and he goes, word for word, I have no idea who you are. But he knows you're down here, and he wants you up there immediately. And I was like, see, I told you. <laughs> what are you going to do now? You know, as I walk by, I'm kind of like this, like, right now? Spread. What's yeah. up now? You know, so anyways, <laughs> that's, that's the connection my mom's had with him, and, and um, it's really strong. And if we had more time, it's funny where to talk about how that chapter came about in his book. That's, Didn't it come out at the last second? Oh, yeah. Like, the book was at like the editor's. Hour. Sherry Dew was with him on his South American tour. Heather's team was the number one team like in the country. He's like a rock star. He's on yeah. a South American <laughs> tour. I love it. <laughs> Sherry Dew's with him. They're eating like a meal. Heather's playing like, who was it, Texas or Florida to go to the Final Four. Mm-hmm. Remember that? It yep. was sold out. Yep. And 
Sherry Dew is a big time fan. She used to text me a lot when I was with the women's team. Just congrats, and uh, yeah. not like we're text buddies, but you know, when big moments, I would get Sherry oh, Dew. Sherry big Dew. Deal. Hey, here yeah. you go. See, Farah, I'm important, hon. <laughs> Look at that. <laughs> um, but uh, she was like watching the live stream like that, you know, at, at dinner. She goes, "Oh my gosh!" Because like game over, you know, and the women's team just just beat Florida, BYU. They're going to the Final Four or whatever, and. President Nelson's like, oh, yeah, Heather's doing such a great job. And Sherry was like, Heather? You call her Heather? You know Heather? Like, not coach, even to know their name, you know, Heather? Oh, yeah, and just casual, like, I I love Heather. I know Heather. Wait, what? Oh, yeah, Heather and her mom, Trudy. What wonderful people and what a beautiful story. Like, just casual, you know? And (laughs) Sherry's like, hold on. And he, he just gives her the brief, like, oh, yeah, you know, boom, 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 boom. Sherry's on the phone like, hold the press. We got to get this thing in the book. And mm. boom, you know, involved my mom. Called me. He, he gave her, uh, you know, can I talk to you? Oh, yeah, Trudy would love to talk to you. Oh, yeah, I'll talk more about that. We can put that in the book. And it was literally at the editors. And yeah. then that happened. So anyway, kind of funny. Okay, yes. let's talk about these ultra marathons you run. This may be the most interesting <laughs> thing about you. It would be enough to just coach volleyball. But you have this, uh, I don't know what to call it, obsession Hobby, yeah. skill, uh, to where yeah. you run ultra marathons. I do my best. Why do you do this? It I, sounds insane. I do my best. I'm gonna <laughs> uh, tomorrow night. I'm gonna drive at about probably 8 p.m. I'm gonna drive about three hours to a trailhead in northern Utah. I'm gonna crash in my car. I'm gonna wake up at about 4 a.m. and I'm gonna hit 26 miles to the top of Kings Peak. That's the highest point in the state of Utah. So I'll do that Thursday morning, then I'll get in my car and come back. So uh, be back Thursday afternoon sometime. That'll be a 26-mile round trip. But I, uh, I don't know if I have a perfect answer. And, and, and that's – I feel like I disappoint everyone when they ask me, like, <laughs> why? And it's – you know, I just uh, – I, I think a lot of people go through, you know, whatever you want to call it, a midlife crisis. I do joke that, hey, this is my midlife crisis. I didn't go buy a Corvette. I just started running mountains and – I find myself, I find something about me, I learn something about me just putting kind of my energy and, and, and my heart and soul into something where I'm on the brink and just don't believe you can go anymore that you really can, you know, and uh, I don't golf, I, you know, other people find golf and different things and I, I know that it all did occur when I was just at a point in my life where... I was just, I, for me, I was out of shape. I was unhealthy. I was grinding in, in work and, and as a dad, you know, a young dad. And life is crazy. And you're just constantly go, 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 go. And I needed to get healthy. I needed to just be in a better place for me, for my family, for, my, for everything. And I, I was listening to a, a Joe Rogan podcast, um, which uh, don't get mad at me if you go look at that. And, you know, there's bad words and, and I watched stuff. a few at lunch today. I know. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But he's got the best guests always. And he's, he's sitting there talking about these people running this 240 mile race in Moab. And it was an inaugural race. And I'm like, I don't know why, because it doesn't make sense that I was fascinated by that. But then in the same moment, I was bummed because I was like, man, I could never do that. Yeah, I just, I couldn't. And then again, then I go, wait, why couldn't I? Wait, yeah, you can. You know, it's kind of the coach in me going, heck yeah, you can. And the next day, I literally woke up, tied my shoes, and probably ran one mile, maybe two, 
And then I just went from there and I held myself accountable. I immediately tried to find some crazy race that was doable, not, you know, not jump right into the 240. Um, but I, I found a Squaw Peak, a local race, a 50-mile trail race that was like six months out. And I said, all right, I'm going to pay the money and I'm going to do it. And, a 50-miler. Uh, a 50-miler, yeah. That was my to Squaw Peak. To, yeah, you run all around here, Vivian Park, back towards Heber, around towards up towards Strawberry Lake, and then you come back to Vivian Park. Oh, my gosh. But uh, so now I've done that race four years in a row. I've, I've done the Ute 100. I've done the Moab 240, and that was full circle for me. That was, that was a moment, man. And I'll probably get emotional, but uh, I'll hold it together. But that was full circle for me because I did that race. That was the race where I was like, what? people are doing what i don't know why it appealed to me because it sucks <laughs> you know so like it spoke to you in some way in yeah it did moment. and then i did it and i did it in october and uh yeah it's just uh i put my phone in airplane mode because i f- i find that time for me that we all have got to have and for me it's to run up a mountain man it's uh i wake up early i'll be on the trail at sometimes three o'clock in the morning tomorrow night i'm gonna sleep i'm sleeping in my car i'm gonna sleep in my car i'm gonna wake up at four in the morning I'm going to run 26 miles to the top of King's Peak. I'll take a picture. I'll send it to you. And uh, then I'm going to run back to my car, and I'm going to come home. And that's, that's a day I'm away from my kids. But my wife, I think we all need that. And uh, for me, that's been my health. And, and uh, I just I, I continue to learn more and more about myself. And, you know, and, and uh, I just continue to find myself more and more in that. And everyone does it maybe in their own way, and that's my way. And, uh, yeah, it's become – Sort of an obsession, uh, obsession. <laughs> maybe to the point of uh, I got to slow down or, you know, be a little more careful. Uh, I just I look at all these peaks around and I, I, I've been probably on most all of them, probably every one of them that wow. circle the valley. And uh, I just I, I find something in the in the piece there. The uh, uh, I, I'm certain uh, that God is good for sure, you know, and uh it's just a beautiful world that it's fascinating to me that I can get to some of these places on my feet and I can do that. And I keep pushing that limit and that boundary um, in my own way. There's other people doing a lot crazier things. But, you know, I'll, I, uh, just, just last week, yeah, just last Friday, I, I woke up in the morning, parked my car at the base of Timp. Ran to the top of Timp, and I was back to my car in about three hours and ten minutes. I went all the way to the top, took, oh my took a picture, took a picture at the hut, took some cool pictures of, the, of some goats, and uh, my dog's always with me. And I was back to the car and back down in the work. I was at work by you know nine thirty on a Friday, and in the office, showered and ready to go for the day. How do you do that? <laughs> and and what is it about it that calls to you? You talked about hey, I put my phone in airplane. But like, what is it? What is it that you love about it? Uh, I think I think I I'm fascinated that I can push my body to something that is like you said, like that's crazy. You know, I think that's enticing. That's almost yeah, almost in, addicting. You know, and and that I can I I can continue to push those boundaries. And to me, what it teaches to me, this isn't for everyone, but for me, it teaches that I, I, Sean Olmsted, have way more potential than maybe I was tapping into. Mm. I, I was, I wasn't tapping into that, you know. For me, and 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 so now it's just constantly searching for that. But but 
man, if I shared with you the pictures and videos that I have, I, I have some insane things that are just the most beautiful things you've ever seen. And you'll get up there. And I felt close. To, I, I felt close to my father. I've, I've felt closer to my father in heaven in some of these places than maybe I ever have in my life. And that's real. And that, you know, when I was going through Moab, that was Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. I finished it Tuesday in the morning. There was moments in that race where heaven was there with me. I, I don't know who or what, but I'd never felt it more strongly in those times when your body is just depleted, just at its lowest. And it, it was some of the most spiritual for me. Spiritual is, a, is an interesting word. You can, you can classify it in a lot of ways. But for me, were some of the most spiritual moments that I've ever had in my life, hands down. So everyone, everyone knows Chad Lewis and uh, one of the most famous athletes we've ever had at BYU, right? And uh, man, that guy, everyone is his best, like everyone, you feel like you're his best friend if you know Chad, which that's why Chad is Chad. And uh, every time I've done a race, like he is just, Sean, when's the next thing? When's the next race? So every time I'm, I'm somewhere new on a mountain, I always send a selfie to Chad, always. Uh, he knows it, every mountain. And um, I just remember that uh, he'll always remember. I tell him once, he will remember six months out, like I'm doing a big vent, like, like my Ute 100. That was my first, that was my first 100 miler my Ute 100. And, uh, that's a big undertaking, you know, and the day before you got it, you know, just pumping me up. And, uh, when I was going to the Moab 240, uh, I was going into my first night and I was, I, I had covered about, um, 70 something miles in that day on my feet. And Incredible. so I was going into the first night and Chad just sent me a message, Sean, it was late at night. It was probably like two or three in the morning. I kid you not. It was, he should not have been awake. And this is just who Chad is. And he said, just look around you, Sean, there's angels and they're there. You may not see them, but they're there and you'll feel them. I promise you, you know, Chad, I promise you they're there. I love you, man. And, and keep moving forward every step. And, you know, it's just, it's just those moments. And, uh, I can honestly say he was right. And I don't have a perfect, how or what or, you know, but uh, I've felt that and felt those feelings. And so that's probably what keeps pulling me back, man. And uh, again, uh, it just keeps pulling me back for more. And, you know, so I just keep trying to push those boundaries of my own self, my own, my own heart, my own soul, and uh, just my own peace, you know, tranquil, just the, 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 the special feelings and, and just those, those safe, those, those safe moments for me, that's, that's where that's at. And then for others, it's other places and that's great and to each their own, but I've definitely found it in that. So there's the spiritual component there. There's also the physical component. Yeah. You, you lost a significant amount of weight. How much did you lose? Yeah. I'm, I'm probably realistically, you know, from right when I started, I'm probably like 50 pounds, you know. 50 pounds. 50 pounds, From yeah. running and then did you change your diet too? I, or I, I, I just, I didn't, I, I wouldn't say like I drastically, right off the bat, I didn't drastically change things. But now as I've gotten into running and I like kind of 
wow, all right, how fast can I do this? Or how fast can I get up to him? I definitely have reevaluated like food and energy that I take in and how. I remember going and doing my first 50 miles. I had no idea what I was doing. I was doing drop bags. You can drop these bags at, you know, halfway down the race and they'll mm. take them there for you. And, and it had licorice and gummy bears and just <laughs> pure crap. I didn't know anything. This, this sounds amazing. I was running. I was just running in random Nike shoes that I'd gotten from the team. I had just a normal whatever kind of watch, you know. I had no idea. And now, I'm, now I've got a watch that can give me my heart rate, my oxygen level. You know, I'm, I'm all into this thing. So, yeah, I've, I've definitely changed my diet. But right from the start, I didn't. But as I began to see myself begin to kind of transform, the, my sleeping improved, my, my energy throughout the day, believe it or not, you know, waking up at all hours of the night. I mean, I've run through the night too, just I don't know why. I've run, I've run all night at Temp, literally start at 5 p.m. and get back at home the next morning at 6 or 7, 7 a.m. and on to dad duties. And my energy level is better than it's ever been. My guys see it. My guys know it. My coworkers, everyone. You know, because when you get to a point where you're unhealthy, it affects everything in your life, your moods, your, your energy throughout the day, your, your sleeping. And I was kicked out. I was kicked out of my bedroom. And it, it, maybe edit that, but uh, I was kicked out of the bedroom for like five or six years because I snored. I snored so loud. So, just, excuse me. Uh, I was just snoring. My wife was like, get out of here. I don't snore anymore. I don't snore. Uh, From running? Yeah, yeah. I just lost a t- I lost all that weight, you know, and I sleep way better, you know, just sleep way more comfortable. No, I don't. Mm. I was literally, I kid you not, I had sheets and a pillow in the cabinets behind the TV that I, my, my family would joke about because they knew they were hidden there. Because one of the kids went down, to, I made a bed on the couch, I put out a sheet, I had my blanket, my pillow, and I slept there for five to six years on the couch, you know. And so I'm back in the bedroom, you know. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm a better dad. Like, hands down, people may listen to this and go like, Sean, you're crazy. This isn't possible. I am a better dad. I'm a better friend. I'm a better son. I'm a better brother. I'm a better husband. I'm a better neighbor because I run. I, it won't make sense. It won't make sense to all you guys, but there is no doubt in my mind. You know, it's just, uh, again, I find so many answers throughout those runs. And I, I did the, I've done the, U, I did the U 100. I didn't listen. I didn't, I didn't, I had no music, no nothing. Most of those long runs, I don't do music or anything. I'm just with my thoughts, man. I just, I feel like I solve every problem in the world. You know, I probably don't, in those but moments. Yeah. I feel like I do. Yeah. I definitely analyze it all, you yeah. know. That's awesome. And that's, that's one of the most interesting things about you is the ultra marathons. It's just like, oh, my gosh, the physical and mental toll of doing that is incredible. Well, I feel like we should do part two and three uh, and four another time oh, because we've run anytime, out of time. Anytime. But, but you're a fascinating figure. Obviously, we have a close relationship with men's volleyball and uh, – can't wait for next year, and uh, thanks for taking a few minutes. Oh, you guys, thanks for having me. This is awesome, and, and thanks for all the support always over the years. I, I, I cherish it, and I appreciate it, and you know that. So uh, I'm really grateful for all that. You guys, as a, as a studio, as a department, individually, all you guys do for our sport and our pro- both programs, both programs. So thank you guys. That'll do it for us. Listen to previous episodes on the BYU Radio app or where podcasts are found. For Sean Olmsted and producer Trent Reimschusel, I'm Jerem Jordan. 
You've just listened to Deep Blue on BYU Radio.